This is the American Association of Orthodontists, the Business of Orthodontics podcast. I'm Pam Paladin, and welcome. Today's podcast is dedicated to a single topic, and that is the new certification process that's being implemented by the American Board of Orthodontics. Our guests are Dr. Myron Guyman from the AAO Board of Trustees and Dr. Larry Tadlock, who is president-elect of the American Board of Orthodontics. Welcome to you both, and thank you for being here. Thanks, Pam. It's, it's always great to be here. Thank you, Pam, for the opportunity. Let's start with just some background about what the American Board of Orthodontics is. Where did it come from? How long has it been around? What's its mission? Dr. Tadlock, you're up. Sure. So the American Board of Orthodontics was founded in 1929. And most people don't realize, even though the board, the ABO, is an independent, uh, has an independent charter, it was founded out of the AAO, by the AAO. So it was a resolution that went before the AAO. And uh, we are essentially a child of the AAO. They are our sponsoring organization, as is the ADA. And you were actually the very first certifying board in dentistry. That is correct. Um, there were two other medical specialties that were formed just before the ABO. And actually, they, they were related in that it was friends of Albert Ketchum that assisted him in the development of the ABO. And the format for certification processes was developed directly from the format and the processes that were used by the medical specialties. What do you see as the ABO's mission? Well, our mission today is very similar to the mission in 1929, which the mission at that time was to elevate the quality of orthodontics. And they had several parts of that. One was to protect the public against unqualified practitioners. And you have to remember back then, there were no specialists. There was no CODA. There was no Council on Dental Education at the time. It was the wild, wild west, and the dentists did what they enjoyed doing or what they preferred to do. And some, there were some orthodontic schools, but there was no way to designate between a dentist and someone whose practice was limited to orthodontics or had gone to a school for 12 months. Uh, there was no way to designate it. So the board certification process was a way at that time that they chose to elevate the quality of care and designate themselves between orthodontists and general dentists. And I see that Dr. Guyman has a question. Uh, Dr. Guyman, go ahead, please. You know, Larry, we had a wonderful visit times past talking about the history of the exam and the certification process and uh, going to a scenario base like uh, like the ABO made the recent changes. But this really isn't anything new, is it? The, the exam was like this in many different forms over many different years. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? No, Myron, you're right. I mean, initially, the licensure or the certification was by credentials. They would look at individuals that had been in practice for 15 years. That was 15 the years. 15 years. That was the first requirement. And then one of the things they would look at is, have they published? What have they published? So they to meet the requirement, they had to either have a textbook, an orthodontic textbook, in its second edition, or they had to have enough publications impacting the profession that the board decided they were worthy of certification. So that was the standard. Uh, that was the first standard. Now, if they didn't have publications, they didn't have a textbook, then they had to show five cases and write a thesis. The actual rule said one or two theses, so it was quite onerous in the beginning. 
but there were no uh, there was no exam unless you showed cases. Few initially showed cases. So it wasn't until the end of the 30s, close to 1940, that the cases became the actual requirement. And it was five cases and a thesis to go along with it. And and if you look, I guess, at the history of orthodontics, this was at a time where the specialty, the profession was developing. And so the quality of care really depended on what people were sharing with each other. And so I could see the mission of the board in increasing the quality, why, why there would be that kind of exam then. It was to share the knowledge base. Yeah, the purpose of the thesis was actually to develop the academic aspect of orthodontics because, again, there were few schools and there really was not academia involved in orthodontics. And the, the original board believed it was absolutely necessary. That type of exam existed until 1950, and they made it a 15-case display plus a thesis at that point. So that that's when things uh, got much more difficult in terms of case display, but that format existed, at least 15 cases existed until 1987. That was the longest run of board certification with showing 15 cases. Wasn't that the time where they had to have two-year post-op retention models also? On all cases. Wow. I can't imagine. So we talked the rationale that we're of uh, switching over to a scenario-based. Some of the things that we visited about were, were kind of interesting to me, the, the fairness, the validity, the repeatability of the test. Why don't you comment a little bit about how you made the changes and what the rationales were for making the changes to the exam? Well, I think probably the one of the biggest aspects of the change was looking at where we are today, the, th- the changes that we have made. Uh, the cases went from 15 to 10. Then they went to 6. Then it went to an ICE exam where it wasn't your individual cases from your practice. That, was, that's the initial certifying exam. That's, that's, that's the, the initial ICE. certification exam were cases treated in your residency program. And all of those didn't change the percentage of board certification or the numbers uh, until the gateway and the ICE, the initial certification program, and it increased it. It went from about 20 to about 42%. So there was an increase. What we see now is it's really pretty much peaked, and we're not, we don't believe we're going to see a big increase from here. So that's part of the impetus. Uh, unless we change the exam, we're not going to have the kind of influence that we would like to have on a larger part of the profession. And that's really what it boils down to. It's not about numbers or percentages of AAO membership. It's about as much influence as possible, elevating the quality of care, the standard of care for the public by reaching as many orthodontists as we can. And, and, and I know the board didn't make these changes lightly. This is something that's been studied probably for many years. Comment a little bit on maybe how some of the other specialty organizations certify their members. Uh, what comes to mind especially is that uh, the Royal Canadian Dental College and, and exam. They've, they've been doing it for about 10 years, maybe a little bit more than that. Uh, they started out with a combination of cases and scenario-based and they quickly decided that the cases were much harder to evaluate, and they got rid of them. We sent representatives to their exam, and they sat for their exam, uh, got to see all the, the things behind the scenes. We've talked to every specialty 
We've discussed their exam in depth. Uh, there are a number of dental specialties that do scenario-based exams, including oral surgery, pedo, perio, and there are some that do a mixed scenario with a few cases. They still struggle. Those with the mix, uh, endodontics would be one. They have a lower percentage of those certified. They just don't complete the exam. So the scenario-based exam removes the roadblocks or the barriers that have existed in orthodontics since the ICE certification began. We talked also about with the uh, cases when you showed that there was almost a self-assessment tool. I know when I did my boards to prepare the cases and to look back and this is what I did, this is what I did well, this is maybe what I could done. Are, are we are we losing a little bit of that with the scenario base or are the advantages that we're gaining more? Well, clearly on the exam, we will have aspects of that self-assessment. It won't be a self-assessment of your own work. It'll be an assessment using the tools that we use now for an assessment of the records that we put in front of you. So at least we will know that you have the ability to do the self-assessment. The one thing about the exam I took is is we were going to talk about my cases. And, and I knew what they were going to ask me about because they had seen my cases. The scenario-based exam, that doesn't sound like anything got any easier. They're, they can ask any question about anything now, can't they? Right. So you are correct. It will not be an easier exam, and especially with regards to outcomes assessments. An example of, an, of a scenario would be pre and post records that you review two tracings, and we ask you to superimpose those tracings. Uh, you won't have to draw anything. You'll just be able to superimpose them and then assess what happened with growth and what happened with treatment. So it won't be your case. You'll have to be able to do that without help and without seeing the cases ahead of time. Tracings will be done. So it's just a matter of doing the superimposition, knowing how to do it. Sounds like an interesting exam. Sounds like dodgeball as a kid when you had to be ready at all times uh, and from every direction. How uh, would you suggest people go about preparing for the new exam then? Well, they're learning all of these things in their programs. Uh, it's not out. We used CODA standards as part of the material we, we used to develop the exam. We used a survey sent out to members. That survey didn't say we're developing a new exam. It said, please evaluate these individual items as part of what we do as an orthodontist. So we have all of that data. And from that data, we then developed four domains of questions. The first is uh, data gathering and diagnosis. Pretty easy. The second is treatment objectives and planning. This is an area that under the current exams, people struggle with setting specific evidence-based objectives. Then the third is implementation of treatment and management. That's just basically what appliances do, some biomechanics, we won't be getting extremely deep in biomechanics and then progress assessments. So cases not going well, and we show you two sets of records, the initial and the progress, and we say uh, what's going on, what happened, and how will you get out of it? So the fourth domain is critical analysis and outcomes assessments, and that's where you're critically analyzing the case pre and post 
you're doing a cast radiograph evaluation, perhaps as a scenario. Uh, those are the th- those are the four domains, and those are typical questions. I know one of the concerns that you'd have anytime you take a test with. I mean, there's there's examiners, there's directors that the test you take is essentially equivalent to the test that someone else would take. And so I know the board had done some analytics, some data analytics on their tests and the questions that they asked to make sure that, that it was level across the board. Maybe you can comment on that. Well, we've started this process over four years ago, actually, looking at uh, ways in which we could improve and uh, by adding psychometric principles to the exam. And the first attempt was to add those principles to the board case oral exam portion, which is the case that the board provides for the examinee to diagnose and treatment plan. And we uh, created 24 standardized questions, and they get an opportunity to diagnose the case, to look at the case, and then we ask those questions in every room. So the exam is essentially the same. The raters, there's two, two examiners, and they rate uh, the examinee. And then that's evaluated by psychometricians and put to a whole lot of statistics. The outcome is that the examiners are given a rating, easy, moderate, hard, and the cases that they look at are given a rating based on that week. And so there is an adjustment of the raw score so that the examinee gets the most fair rating and, and most fair outcome. So it's a, it's a uh, look, it's an industry standard testing method. And that's what we wanted to go to. It's harder to apply that uh, to the case part, which we, we made some attempts, but... Uh, we, we weren't able to do that. So that, too, was a part of our decision to change. Following up on what you just said, did it have anything to do with there being subjective calls about what, what's a good finish and what isn't a good finish? Now that's a good question. Years ago, the board had that critique that it was up to the examiner as to what, how the case was finished. And out of that, they, de- they developed the objective grading system. Uh, Vince Kokich and others worked on that heavily. And it's not 100% objective, but it's far more objective than it was. So uh, we use that today, and uh, we have multiple graders that grade it, and we go through a calibration system uh, or calibration exercise uh, at the beginning of every single exam. They do one at home. We, a- we analyze it, and then they do one here with everybody around. So uh, our calibration process is about as good as it can get. With the historical perspective and the, I mean, the sweeping changes that have been in this exam for nearly a hundred years, this has been a continual improvement process. And so what, what are we doing now to improve the process and the, and the new exam? The new scenario based exam will apply psychometrics across the board. So every scenario, every exam room, uh, the scenarios will be different, the examiners will be different, but the questions will be pre-decided. The promptings and the follow-up questions will be pretty much pre-decided. So every examinee is going to get the same exam. And in this way, it, it increases our reliability across the entire exam. I guess one of the things we haven't touched on is 
is why board certification? Why now? The why now, in my view, is is really a more important question. If you compare the conditions that existed in 1929, when Albert Ketchum pushed board certification and, and the board uh, proposal through the AAO, the conditions today are much different. But the challenges that existed then are pretty much exactly the same as they are now. Since we've been looking at this for a number of years, we really were going to be slower in this process. But we felt like the challenges every single year kept getting greater and greater. We can add at-home aligners. We can add any number of other things to the problem, and everybody knows what the challenges are. We decided that we couldn't wait, and so we went ahead and made it. Looking back on our discussion today, the exam has been a continual process. The exam has always asked the examinees to apply the knowledge base that was available at the time. Uh, and now the exam appears to me that you're asking the examinees to apply the knowledge that they learned through their practice, through their residency. Uh, what, it sounds like a great exam. Well, it certainly, we believe, is an exam of what they will do every day in private practice. Uh, we, and it's an example of that. One possible scenario would be in the first domain for data gathering and diagnosis. Let's take a lateral cephalogram and a tracing that's the ABO tracing or a Steiner tracing. It doesn't have all the measurements that you might need to evaluate certain things. And let's say that we pick a case that has a real steep selenazion, and so you have a large difference between SN and Frankfurt Horizontal. If the candidate is not able to see that there is a difference and that that's significant, if they don't understand that, then they'll miss the fact that the maxilla might be in a normal position or the mandible might be in a normal position. These are things they should be able to identify in their own private practice every single day. So this is an example of going beyond what the current exam allows us to do and actually grade it under psychometric principles. And we feel like this is an exam that covers much more, a, a much greater breadth of orthodontics and is, will be a better examination. Well, I think it ultimately it makes us better orthodontists. Uh, I think board certification is important for us to perfect our craft and, and also to distinguish our, ourselves from those that haven't done what we've done to do what we do. Where do you see the board and the exam in, in five years, ten years down the road as we have these continual improvements? You know, ultimately, uh, we will continue to do the same thing that we've been doing for all these years. And that is we'll self-evaluate uh, as we do every single year and uh, look to see whether we're keeping track with the conditions and doing having the right exam for the examinees. Um, we will collaborate with all the necessary parties, especially the AAO, uh, and we'll use that collaboration uh, to further enhance the exam uh, and then in hopes that we increase the number of board-certified orthodontists. It means greater influence. Our hope is that it increases the standard of care, all for the patient. You know, one of the barriers 
to board certification in the past is that it took years. It took years to find your cases and then treat them and, and then get the retention models. Um, a lot of those barriers are, are, uh, not like they used to be. When would you think the best time to take the board exam would be then? Well, we believe any time is a good time. Um, right out of residency, you may be a little more academic than you are 20 years into your practice. We've thought about these things. We are developing mechanisms with other organizations, such as the College of Diplomats of the American Board of Orthodontics, in order to provide training classes and assist those that have been out. So those are ongoing and under development. We'll have things on our website uh, to help those uh, understand what exactly will be on the exam. And uh, through these ways, we believe any time is a good time. So would it be fair to say then that if if you have been in practice for a while, you're still interested in board certification, but you haven't gone for it, it's still okay to go for it? One of the advantages of a scenario exam is that it is, in fact, adaptable to any sort of practice environment that you're in. One of the problems we have, even in someone who brings cases to the current exam, and even banks cases, and then they go into a corporate practice. They're unable for a number of reasons to get additional records in order to submit cases. This type of exam removes that barrier. So whether they're an associate, they don't have their own pra- their own patients, or whether they're in a, a DSO or a situation, a corporate practice, um, this exam uh, will be for them. It sounds like you guys have gone through a very thoughtful process to make these changes. Um, maybe you could comment on when the changes do take effect and what happens to a guy like me that's certified before that's going to need to recertify in the future. Well, so the new exams, uh, the new exam will take effect in February of 2019. Uh, however, we still allow a case-based, we still will have a case-based exam September of this year and then we will do the same, both by petition to the board, just have to ask, but we'll have it also again in February 2019. After that, uh, everything is planned to be scenario-based exam. For those who need to recertify, um, then it's under the current rules of certification, and you just look on the website and you'll find it there. Dr. Tadlock, let's talk a little bit about um, people who may have questions uh, about the new test Uh, about the process of becoming board certified. Who should they talk to at the ABO? Do they need to talk to one of the directors, ABO staff? Who do you recommend? Well, the first is the director from your constituency. If you have access to them, uh, easy access to them, I would give them a call. Uh, The staff uh, at, at the ABO office are amazing people, and they have lots of answers. But I know that the directors are more than willing to give you uh, all the help you need and and give you all the information you need as well. So both of those are great resources, um, and the ABO uh, office and staff is is sometimes easier to get a hold of. But, um, But I would say both of those. 
Well, I, I did a little research before we sat down to chat and uh, found on the ABO website, which is AmericanBoardOrtho.com, that if you hover over a link that says About ABO, you'll see a pop-up, and, and I clicked on Our Leadership, and then I clicked on Current Board, and I was able to find the names of all of the people who were currently serving on the board and their contact information, and uh, it was a very easy process. And then for those who prefer to call during business hours, the American Board of Orthodontics staff is available for answering questions. That phone number is area code 314-432-6130. We're just about out of time, Dr. Tadlock, but wanted to, wanted to ask to see if you might have anything else you'd like to add. We are planning an open house at the AAO annual session in Washington, D.C., and that open house will be for the purpose of a- answering as many questions as possible of those who have them and really showing examples of scenarios that might be used on the exam. So hopefully, uh, if you have any interest, you'll take the time to come by. And when is that happening in annual session? Saturday and Sunday morning. And that is a wrap for this episode of the Business of Orthodontics podcast. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Larry Tadlock from the American Board of Orthodontics and Dr. Myron Guyman from the AAO Board of Trustees. This is Pam Paladin. Thanks for listening.